Welcome to episode 15 of the 18th Shadow Radio. This is your author and narrator, John Lee Grafton. The 18th Shadow, Phase 2, Voices in the Stream, Chapter 2.4, The Tether. William followed Dax through the barn door, noting that it opened and closed without a touch. The barn was not old, just made to appear so from the sky. Once inside, it was tomb-silent. Precisely aligned rows of industrial LEDs hung from the ceiling on long chains, illuminating the clean asphalt floor. Two Kawasaki Solar Mule four-person ATVs were parked against the far wall, and there were larger, open spaces to either side that William assumed were spots for the flatbed hovertruck and John Deere solar tractors. At the far side of the cavernous structure stood tall sacks of burlap bags labeled pumpkin seed. William remarked, No dirt floor. Dax Abner turned with a congenial smile, hands in his pockets. Dirt? Good dog, no. A dirt floor made sense when the primary form of transportation had hooves and a tail or burn gasoline. The only vehicles in need of tires today are those that drive across agricultural fields. Yet the wheel endures. It wouldn't do to have your hemp seedlings ripped through a worm drive every time a hovercraft flew by, now would it? William conceded. Right. What happened to all the tires in the world, anyhow? Goodyear insulation happened. Rubcrete, asphalt hovecar pads and hove roads, the living enduro grass field at Arrowhead Stadium, 12-hour self-regenerating golf greens, the genetic splicing of grass with the organic components of recycled rubber. Got it. Phasing out rubber tires and their associated pollution was one of the few processes the EPA got right. Like advancements in battery storage density, Dax waved his arms enthusiastically, hovercars that can float 13 hours on a charge, rubber reapplication is one of those mid-century industries we take for granted nowadays. A humming noise got louder, coming closer. Another fat-bellied security drone that had escorted the hub truck out of the barn returned, entering through its access port. William followed the drone's path as it floated slowly to a platform in the rafters and dropped with a light whack into a charging cradle beside a smaller unit. There was no loft in the barn, only a utility ladder that provided access to the drone nest. How many birds up there? Well... Several wild pigeons, three not-so-wild drones, two Class B observation units with high-def infrared cameras, and the obese one you just saw is a faster drone, an A-7 combat class. William inclined his head towards the hundreds of sacks labeled pumpkin seed. I'm guessing that's not... Dax led him towards the neatly organized sacks, dress shoes clicking over the asphalt. Now you're getting the picture. There is actual seed in the bags in front. The rest contain dehydrated potato powder, sewn tight into the burlap. The cook uses the powder to make the mash for our fermentation process. The cook? You don't grow your own potatoes? Inefficient. Messy. We are a pumpkin farm, after all. The cook is my stillmaster, Garon. You will be introduced directly. Why pumpkins? Psychological camouflage, my friend. No North American crop has more cultural associations with good, clean, flag-waving family fun than pumpkins. We give hayrides in October and November. I dress in overalls and puff a corncob vapor pipe. It's absolutely odious. 
but your average Kansan slurps it up like plesium-laced whipped cream. It gives Abner family pumpkin and gourd a nice, forgettable association. We're certainly not going to grow Jane. We'd have regulators crawling weakly up our arse. I sit on the civilian advisory board for the local CNED office, and am a generous quarterly donor. It is widely known to everyone in the municipality of Lawrence that I own the Rowdy Pony Coffee and Ganja Bar as well. You donate money to CNED? Know thy enemy. Savage. Damn smart, though. Francis speakeasy. The Green Lady Lounge, hidden beneath. I should have known. Most drinking takes place in private residences. However, there are five other functioning speakeasies in the region as well. Two in DeSoto, one in a barn in Topeka, and two in the basement of Holoflex Theatres in Leewood. You own them all? No, but I do provide them with still vodka, plus a hint of tech support. Each has a black-side drone in service at all times. Impressive, said William quietly. Rudimentary subterfuge, at best. William smirked. I ain't the biggest fan of CNED. Who is? But please, enough potato talk. I have a few more surprises. William lifted his cowboy hat and scratched his head. After that Borg outside, if you can surprise me again, I'll hit that vapor stick with you. Lead the way, boss. Dax grinned, then stopped as if remembering something. I shall. First, pray tell, are you familiar with the legend of tricyclic summit theory? Ain't it funny, said William morosely. I can't remember the house I grew up in, but I know what that is, yeah. Old-timers out on safari range used to rumor over it. Then I shall not bore you with the various opinions on the matter, rather drive straight to the truth. The truth. The Adler Code is not a myth, my friend. To date, it is the most advanced operating system language ever conceived. Marvin Adler stabilized his first version and downloaded it into Coyote 1 and the subsequent 17 clones. Within three months of the final gestation, it is assumed that the PAX 1.1 level code destabilized, the cyborgs went rogue and slaughtered not only Dr. Adler, but his entire support staff, including his biostructural engineer, Dr. Sam Goldstein. Dogs units still rely on Goldstein's mechanical design and Adler's code. The military has since overcome the danger of cyborg madness through the installation of behavioral control overrides. Overrides that, as you know, can shut a dog's unit down, like collapsing a hollow. This turns dogs units into very advanced robots, nothing better. Adler's original vision was the creation of a creature capable of consciousness, experiential learning. An entry-level Fido from Pittsmart learns from experience. Dax raised his index finger. Fidos and Felixes do theoretically learn, but theoretically is the operative term. They cross-reference incoming data against an established lexicon of condition-appropriate responses. Like any advanced binary computer, a chess game, for instance, they are merely performing based on if event A, then response C, in correlation with past event B, logic cascade, and so forth. I don't know much about science, William shrugged. I just know I get on pretty well with any dog I ever met. One's wasn't rabbit, at least. Blood or bored. In your personnel file, they call you the Whisper. William took his sunglasses off, finally realizing he was inside. Jesus, yeah, this sounds daft. I can hear them, their thoughts. He met Dax's eyes. 
especially these Rottweilers of yours. You aren't surprised. Hardly. I don't know what it is. Even in safe mode back on the range, the cyborgs would talk. I can remember that. They were afraid. Fascinating. Another question? William nodded. Do you know why all publicly available cyborg tech is legally constrained to Fido and Felix design? Because of us. We've had domesticated cats and dogs around since we crawled out of the caves. Kits and pups give us that uh, comfy, familiar brain hit, right? Correct. And do you know what makes a fusion unit running the Adlico different? William shook his head. The tether. The tether? The Adler Code is a perfect digital blueprint of canine psychological engrams. When safety protocols are deactivated, the cyborgs immediately seek a human bridge to the outside world. Canines operate on structure. The coyotes were seeking, and presumably even to this day are seeking, their pack leader, their tether. For a cyborg running the Adler Code, the tether completes their unconscious desire for human interaction. But dogs and cats survived for millions of years before we showed. True, but Dr. Adler did not base his scripting language on a wild animal's engrams, rather those of his domesticated pet doction, Mimi. William squinted. So, those coyotes were spooled domesticated? Yes, but psychologically hybridized with the instinctual engrams of the wild animals their morphology is based on. Pack mentality, a taste for blood etc. So, those first dogs units, the coyotes, were half domesticated, half wild? Yes, and transcripts from the Dark Pool Laboratory research indicate that Dr. Adler functioned as the coyote's tether. However, just like any wild animal that is somewhat domesticated, the coyotes, particularly Coyote 1, were not fully functional in the enclosed environment of the lab. That's the theory, at least. That code was nascent, vulnerable. I, I don't get it. All we know is that someone associated with Dr. Adler's team attempted to modify their behavioral overrides, possibly Dr. Goldstein. Consequently, the coyotes rebelled, slaughtered the laboratory staff, then escaped into the wild. No one knows, but it's a little pet project of mine to find out. That's some party shit. How'd you get inside news on the events at Darkpool, anyhow? Dax pointed to the far side of the barn. The answer lies right there. William turned, the wooden framework that made up the barn wall way before him. Empty space. The answer's a barn wall? Dax barely smiled. So it would appear. William walked closer. Looks like nothing, Mr. Abner. Indeed, and you look like a cowboy. Dax drew his hands from his pockets, gesturing with excitement and speaking faster. But in fact, you are the key to safely increasing the output of my still tenfold. He walked up behind William and clapped him on the back. You are the tether. Huh? Dax Abner casually waved a hand. Well, Lofen seems to think so. Now we'll find out how the rest of the pack feels. He touched his combud. Joan, be a doll and deactivate the lift hologram. Yes, I'm bringing him now. Give us time to take in Garon by the still, then have the dogs' units meet us in the warehouse. Dax frowned. What? Well, then tell him I understand. Nonetheless, spool the units with protocols off. Correct, thank you. 
Dax smiled at William like a hovecar salesman, cocking his head whimsically. Sorry, that's the office manager. He pointed at what had been the empty wall of the barn. Now do you see? Fragmented Remains from the Cloud Diary of Doxon Julius Abner, July 4, 2077, 12.01 a.m. Five years, three months before event. Happy Independence Day. Have a drink on me, have a hundred thousand on me. We are officially the number one black market alcohol production facility in the North American United States as of last week. The dogs unit sweep the 600-acre perimeter, radiating Jones' dark network. The creatures are relentless, obsessed with pleasing William. From the moment I told him about the true nature of this pumpkin farm... He was a duck on the pond. He walked out of the briefing with Joan without a blink, as though I'd just hired him to be a barista at the pony. He sends one of the cyborgs on each outgoing shipment, tells them to obey Hugo, and they do. Perfectly. No safety protocols. Fascinating is the only word. I need an on-site manager to assist Hugo. The Israeli says the person will come to us through... Unscheduled hardware distract. Data compromise. Initiate backup.exe for reintegration format. Loss. 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 William took a step back. The barn wall began to blink and vibrate like an enormous holovision screen getting a corrupted feed. Quickly revealed was a three-sided cargo elevator with metal side rails large enough to accommodate a hove truck. The elevator bed was perfectly flush with the asphalt floor. Beside the cargo elevator, a human-sized six-panel wooden door had also materialized. The green door looked as if it had been painted 200 years ago, hung on hammered brass hinges in the dusted corners of a saloon where the whiskey poured like western rain in the antique centuries. Despite the door's rough appearance, it was hefty and solid in construction and was secured with a liquid plasma hand scanner. A single red LED blinked slowly on and off in the upper right-hand corner of the machine. An identical biometric scanner was mounted to the railing on the cargo elevator. Dax stood to one side, inclining his head. Care to scan us in? William squinted with trepidation, then put it together. My hand imprint on the employment agreement when you jumped me at the hospital. Dax gave an offhand shrug. My hiring practices are unorthodox, but I have a schedule to keep. William placed his hand against the semi-liquid surface. The scanner's gelatinous plasma folded around his fingers, and the red LED blinked green, popping the door open with a rush of cool, dry air. The backside of the door was covered by a two-centimeter steel plate and revealed a metal staircase. William started down, followed by Dax. The walls on either side were concrete, illuminated by recessed lights in the ceiling. As they descended, nothing was visible but a landing at the bottom. William guessed that the forty or so steps took them twelve meters underneath the barn. At the bottom was a metal door with an old-fashioned knob. Dax spoke, as if to himself. Here we go, then. William didn't blink. He turned the knob and walked into a cavernous room nearly the size of the barn, with seven-meter ceilings of reinforced structural concrete like a docking garage. The warehouse was bright, clean, 
On all sides, its cement walls were illuminated by rows of hanging shop lights that gave the cement an odd green hue. Directly to the left of the door was the enormous pad for the freight elevator he had seen upstairs. To his right was a gray blast door wide enough for a person, or a dog. Beside the freight lift sat stacks of neatly organized wooden crates, laser-stamped with a barcode in the text 2077.4.5 G and C, indicating the date of production. It was vodka. Thousands of liters of vodka. William had seen crates like these before, behind bars in various Oklahoma speakeasies, filled with one-liter masons of liquor. Two humanoid warehouse bots stood idle next to a large ceiling-mounted hammock filled with packing peanuts and a trunk that hung down to dispense them into the crates. A large table with a few empty crates beneath it sat against the far wall, a packaging station for the outgoing booze. The sleeping warehouse bots, though heavy-duty, were just like stocking bots in any warehouse. They had egg-shaped domes for heads with a single camera eye in the center, along with a microphone and a basic spatial array. Dax was silent, a bemused grin on his face as he let William take it in. At the center of the warehouse was the still itself. It was composed of four towering copper fractionating columns, punctuated with circular glass portals that made each look like a tall golden flute standing on end. Beside the fractionating columns were the boiling tanks, each silver-colored with a bell-shaped copper dome. Flanking the dual stills were the yet larger stainless steel fermentation tanks, each 4,000 liters in volume, resting like fat, lazy kick drums. A dizzying matrix of copper tubing and plumbing framed the setup, including a 12-centimeter water supply line routed across the warehouse ceiling. Heavy-duty conduits emerged from the western wall, supplying electricity to the heating elements beneath the boiling tanks. Steam jets whistled from release valves at the top of the fractionating columns, giving the entire scene the smoldering appearance of a 19th-century factory. The only area he couldn't see was the distant, shadowed corner of the warehouse beyond the still where the lights were off. William turned to Dax and whistled softly. Damn! Dax looked on, pridefully. We anticipate producing 22,000 undiluted liters every 30 days by the end of next month. We at Abner Family Pumpkin and Gourd supply speakeasy distributors as far away as Denver and Chicago with the finest black market vodka in the North American Union. Oh, and look, here comes the little master now. Rounding the long curve of the fractionating columns, walking over the metal scaffolding that surrounded the boiler tanks, a tiny black man appeared. A dwarf. He wore snug-fitting blue hemp jean overalls and boots and looked to be in his early fifties with a thick beard the color of overcast winter sky and a black pirate's patch over his right eye. His right arm was bionic from the shoulder down with a magnetic socket where the wrist would be. The socket presently contained a heavy, well-worn crescent wrench that the man periodically closed and opened as though of unconscious habit. On his left shoulder perched a white baby Felix, the size of a softball. William looked at Dax, then back without a word. The dwarf was muscular, solidly built. The tattoo of a vicious-looking yellow dragon was prominent on his neck. He darted down the corrugated metal stairs in front of the still with surprising agility and arrived shortly, standing in front of the two men. Dax took his vapor joint out and handed it to William, who nodded, took a long hit, then handed it back, casually exhaling the vapor. Dax tucked the E-joint back into his coat and said, William, this is Garon and Cat. 
Goron, Cat, this is William. William's here to wrangle the dogs after a fashion. The white kitten hissed and arched her back at the mention of the dogs' units. William tipped his hat towards the little man. A pleasure, sir. The dwarf did not respond. His expression remained stern and fixed. The kitten, however, hopped from one shoulder to the next and sat up on its hindquarters, mewling plaintively. William noted a nasty scar running down from the patch-covered eye to the tiny man's upper lip. After a few more seconds of awkward silence, he looked over at Dax. Goron doesn't talk, William. Several years ago, he was caught in a speakeasy raid, fought back, poured straight moonshine over an agent, and set him on fire. In retaliation, they blinded him, put his arm through a sonic wood chipper, and cut out his tongue, left him for dead in a ditch. Jesus, said William coolly. I'm afraid the great dog wasn't involved. In fact, Goron makes his own fortune. He's the one who built this still. He cooks our vodka. Russian? asked William. Cat immediately hissed and turned her pink bioskin kitten butthole in William's direction and released a petite fart. Garan's lone blue eye stared at the two men. The wrench attached to his right arm opened and closed. Otherwise, he remained still and stone-faced. Dax laughed. He is most certainly not Russian. They have no shortage of vodka distillers there. No, Garan is from Marfa, Texas. Texas, William growled. No wonder Ed cut him down so hard. Only place rougher is Oklahoma. Cat the kitten spun back around, changed shoulders, meowed in agreement, then began licking her tiny paw. Did you rescue him? Kind of like you rescued my sorry ass? So to speak. How do you talk to each other? Engram translator? Dax smiled politely. He has no tech. Garon just knows what to do. I'm not even going to ask. Sometimes that's best, said Dax pleasantly. Good day, Garon. Cat meowed again and gave William a little bow as Garon stepped between the two men without ceremony and disappeared out the door to the upstairs. The warehouse was quiet once more, save the steam clicks and rattles of the plumbing feeding the still. William eyed the stacks of crated vodka with new appreciation. Dax effused. Without Garon and his Felix, this whole operation would not be possible. They are cool pair. What's up with the uh, dragon tattoo? The ink is a totem, indicating the Order of Adelanda. The Order is a worldwide consortium of dwarves who are considered to be master craftsmen in their respective trade. Like a dwarf's master union? Yes, but for any field of practice, from medicine to astronomy to music, Garan was a member of the Marfa chapter of Adelanda. Highly exclusive, highly secretive. His mate was murdered in the same raid that left him mute. But those days are long past. Garan has Cat. Cat has Garan. They just... no. You'll see. Like engineering the perfect high-capacity vodka still, Garan walked in with the knowledge. The only difference between this one and a still created 200 years ago is the anti-corrosive linings of the coils and, of course, the fact that ours is heated by fusion. William stood with his hands on his belt, looking at the still... That sucker must cook up some strong shit. Potent indeed, from what I understand. William turned. You don't drink? Dax looked offended. Don't be absurd. I would rather hurl my naked body into a pit of salted glass shards than drink alcohol. 
No problem with it philosophically, he conceded. My physiology simply doesn't prefer the effects. I'm a marijuana man through and through. Besides, don't sample your product is drug dealer axiom number one, right? Fair enough, said William. For the record, my drug philosophy is if it gets you high and not too many people have died, I'll give it a shot. Dax raised his eyebrows. How conservative of you, William. But what say we chat socially later on? I do believe some four-legged members of our team have joined us. Dax looked over his shoulder with a tight, edgy smile. Fragmented Remains from the Cloud Diary of Doxon Julius Abner, September 11, 2077, 4.20 a.m., five years, one month before event. Can we call it murder? I say those senior mercenaries, humdroids, are but casualties of their own violence. We have just an hour ago come in from hosing blood off the cyborgs. Unanticipated brutality. William says it happens with animals, seems unsurprised. The dogs' units have been free-functioning since the day he arrived, however, and I am personally feeling no compunction about the deaths. These humdroids found exactly what they wanted to find. A still. Well, actually, all they found was our property line. They were greeted by William, who will not go on patrol alone again, with nothing but a thirty caliber hunting rifle to defend himself. He has suffered five fractured ribs and a bruised lung. I do believe he is beginning to understand the scope of this war. He attempted to verbally warn two CNED hunters that they were trespassing. The CNEDs responded by firing a sonic shotgun at his chest. Fortunately, he was wearing armor. Alas, nanobots can osteoweld broken bones. The attack luckily happened within scan range of Snotra and Siegfried. The cyborg's response, Siegfried promptly dismembered a Mr. Stanley Jenks while Snotra pinned his colleague, a Mr. Filbert A. Tram, to the earth, driving her foot pedestal through the man's shoulder. Agent Tram was still alive while he watched Siegfried rip apart his friend. Then, both cyborgs dismembered Mr. Tram in a team effort. When I say dismembered, let me be clear. The dogs' units ripped the arms and legs off these men, chewed their torsos in half, and crushed their sonic shotguns in their jaws. The animals were protecting their tether. Upon review, the cyborg's code is perfectly stable, which leads me to conclude that the emotional response of the human tether may be transmitted to his subordinates? In less than 120 seconds, Joan erased the final moments of these men's lives from the GovCloud. A last-known swipe of Stanley Jinx combat occurred at a Jane store on the opposite side of the city. In about 12 hours, their families will start pinging the police. They will find... wind. The dogs' units dragged the remains of the bodies and weapons into the river. Stanley Jinx and Philip Tram are now cop food. The person most upset has been Hugo. He was the first to see Siegfried covered in ripped flesh and... Unscheduled hardware distract. Data compromise. Initiate backup.exe for reintegration. Format. Loss. 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 William turned. With their backs to the warehouse, the gray blast door had quietly slid open. The three dogs' units had padded up behind them in perfect silence. First encounter. William dropped to one knee, putting himself at eye level with the creatures. 
The Rottweilers stood side by side, ignoring Dax. The largest, a male, cocked his head to one side. The two females behind him immediately turned their heads at the same angle. Their short, bobbed tails wagged freely. William examined each cyborg one after the other. Their eyes were brownish-yellow in color, with broad, black, holographic pupils. Each tracked his line of sight perfectly. If the cyborgs bore him any physical danger, they did not communicate such. In fact, it appeared they wanted to play. William jumped to his boots. Come on! He ran to the open area of the warehouse before the still and turned. The cyborgs barked with puppy-like excitement and bounded over, encircling him. William was knocked to the floor and assaulted with nuzzles and licks. He noted the strength of the dogs' unit's limbs as he half-smiled and shoved them helplessly, rubbing their ears and fluffy white-tufted chests. They were obviously restraining themselves from using anywhere near their full power. As he ran his hands over their shiny black bodies, it was easy to pick out the structural differences in their titanolume skeletons. The rib cages moved and flexed when the cyborgs relaxed, but with the slightest motion, their bones once more turned hard as stone. The Rottweiler shouldered and nipped. He was able to play amongst them for nearly thirty seconds before a hand got pinched in the wrong spot between two hip plates. William clutched his fingers, standing with anger. Son of a bitch! All three of you sit the hell down! He growled at the largest cyborg. The Rottweilers clipped to a sitting position, six eyes looking at him attentively. He held his hand, grimacing. He wasn't really hurt. It was just damn painful. William again shook his head and whistled. They're so strong, but they dial it back. Otherwise, they'd crush me like a snail on a rock. What would happen if you turned off their safety protocols? Dax Abner walked slowly closer, holding his fingers in a tent. He examined the animals as if seeing them for the first time. William, that is what I meant about you being the tether. Loafing outside, these three... All safety protocols have been off from the start. William bent over to pick his cowboy hat up off the floor. Huh? They are choosing to sit. They chose to adjust their kinetic responses. They chose to play, Dax said with delight. William looked at the animals, their eyes locked on his. What were they failing to do in safe mode, then? When they're being controlled by our mainframe, they just follow commands like robots— their response time is degraded. They look to Joan for answers to every piece of complex environmental stimuli they encounter, as opposed to independent recognition, in which case they defer to only you, apparently. They can now constantly absorb and learn, increasing the fractal density of their code with each new experience. Well, damn, I'm honored. They all got names, tech compliments? Dax moved slightly closer, still observing the cyborgs warily. I haven't been terribly creative there. I just use their default designations. The big one is Siegfried class, BIOS model AK9-CIV 7.1. The female on his right is Freya class, BIOS model AK9-CIV 6.7. Both are equipped with retractable 40mm Toho particle cannons. Lofen, who you met first and her sister Snotra, came as twins. They're both AK-9 Civ-6 models, slower, not as strong, but all four run on independent microfusion matrices and have flexible synth-diamond graphene-backed motherboards with AMD Quantum 9 processors. William raised his eyebrows. Toho cannons? I heard rumors they got weaponized Borgs on the lunar ranges. Makes the hunting a little more exciting. Them Quantum 9 processors run the new Mars shuttles, right? That is correct. Damn. 
Dam is most adequate. These are the most advanced Civ-class Borgs available in the world today. These particular units were assembled in Israel. Their skeletal chassis are encased in self-repairing graphene network conduits, bioskin level 6, 7 on the bigger two, complete tissue regeneration in 18 hours, onboard gallium arsenic nanobot maintenance, temporal mask fusion cores, our... Dax cleared his throat. <clears throat> Office manager has removed the expiration language from their bios. They are totally self-sustaining cybernetic organisms embedded with domesticated canine psychengrams. For our benefit, that makes them require human interaction for optimal function. What's their capacity for verbal? They can understand almost anything. If they can't, it will be translated to a binary response and pushed by Joan from the comm station. I gotta meet this Joan, lady. We are getting to that. The real question is whether they will voluntarily respond to a full battery of commands. Care to try? Sure. William put his hands on his hips and looked at the three Rottweilers who were still sitting dutifully, following every motion he made. He used standard trainer gestures as he spoke. Stand. They immediately stood. Show me your vid orbs. The micro-holograms in front of the cyborg's eyes collapsed. Excellent. Okay, down. They dropped to the floor, eagerly watching through their now bright red eyes. William tilted his head at Dax. All right. Let's try something a little more complicated. All three of you, eyes organic, Freya and Siegfried, spool Toho cannons. The dogs' units sat in unison, their holographic eyes flashed back. Siegfried's jaw dropped open unnaturally wide, like the jaw of a snake with a hollow pneumatic click. The telescoping particle cannon extended rapidly, protruding twelve centimeters beyond his muzzle. Freya's jaws performed the same motion, but at a much slower pace. As soon as Siegfried's Toho weapon began glowing faint red, the same female voice William had heard in the Hovlimo came over the warehouse comm. Warning. Spooling particle weapons in proximity to the primary fusion reactor is not recommended. Dax touched his comm bud. Sorry. He shrugged amicably. Apologies, William. That's Joan. We had best play with the guns outside. William was busily examining the silver Toho cannon that had finally come out of Freya's throat aperture. No problem, sir. Okay, dogs, retract weapons. The cannon in Siegfried's mouth retracted within seconds, and his jaw shifted back to a normal anatomical appearance. The same process happened in virtual slow motion for Freya. The computerized voice spoke again. Your compliance is appreciated. William whistled again. Is cannon deployment time the main difference between these two? Correct. And he's faster and stronger. Snotra and Lofen are rated as CFS-6 Borgs. Freya is CSF-7. Siegfried has a CSF-8 rating. Eight? Badass. He whistled low and extended both hands away from his chest in a sweeping motion. Go be free. The dog's units jumped up and milled about, panting happily, then encircled William's legs and plopped the cool cement by his boots, looking entirely relaxed, heads on their paws. Dax Abner touched his jaw. Joan, do you have anything to contribute? The computerized female voice responded. As predicted, the human designated as William Thomas Angevine is capable of tethering. Quantitative processing efficiency on dogs' units beta through epsilon has increased 2.3%. Shall I spool Thor in a dependent recognition mode as well? 
William smiled at Dax inquisitively. I'm guessing Joan is really a supercomputer of some sort? You could say that. You have a fifth board, Thor? What did you think the freight elevator was for? Fragmented Remains from the Cloud Diary of Doxon Julius Abner, October 30, 2077, 9.41 p.m. Four years, eleven months before event. Last of the civilians have left. Oh, good dog, this Halloween nonsense. I forget how much I detested hayrides and screaming children, minds littered with sugary drinks, wiping October snot on their pants. We are Pumpkin Farm, however. We all play a part. It was vastly easier with William here this season. He does not seem to mind the brats, incessant symbols of mindless fluid exchange that they are. One child spilled a Coca-Cola on my shoe. I would have liked to have locked the little mongrel in a closet. Not for long, just a few days until it was unconscious. Could be packaged up and returned to the appropriate orphanage. Hugo dressed up as a scarecrow. And, for what it's worth, the gods are lovely this year. Banners, ribbons, balloons. William had all four of the Rottweilers out. They rolled about in the fields, and children petted them. Adults chatted with William about what spectacular specimens they were. We placed artificial bone sheaths on their canines and incisors, instructed them to keep their tongues in a position where the microchip was not visible. One gentleman, apparently an NAKC breeder, asked William if he cared to sire Siegfried. The poor bitch who would be the recipient of that love, I can only... Unscheduled hardware destruct. Data compromised. Initiate backup.exe for reintegration. Format. Loss. 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 The more extreme a situation the more stable and quiet William became. At the mention of a mill-class dog's unit, he crossed his arms and stood like a statue. Don't be frightened. I only presume you will be able to control the big one also. Joan, spool Thor, full independent recognition. William spoke quietly. I'm not frightened. I just won't believe it until I see him. Are the seven mill units network compatible? The five dogs' units regard each other as hierarchical components on the same intrastream. Thor is Alpha. William interrupted. Got it. Siegfried's Beta, Freya Gamma, Loaf and Delta, Snowtra is last. Have you ever spooled the Thor unit outside safe mode? Dax pursed his lips quizzically. Let's see. No. Considering he could destroy the entire facility with ease, it never seemed prudent. William pulled his hat off his head and scratched his sideburns. How long does it take for him to... From the dark end of the warehouse, beyond the wisps of steam rising over the still, came a low, mournful howl, like a sparking locomotive engine. Oh! Dax Abner placed his hands, one of which was lightly trembling, in his pockets, and raised an eyebrow. Well, he's never made that noise before. Siegfried, Freya, and Snotra barked loudly and darted into the dark recesses of the warehouse. Their yips and whines echoed over the cement as they vanished. The hair on William's arms stood at the sound of Thor's first steps. 
The air seemed to cool a few degrees, like a rapid barometric pressure drop. Those first steps moved slowly towards them from the blackness. Pause. Then they came more quickly. The Rottweilers burst around the corner of the still, running out in front. The first thing William saw was Thor's blue vid-orbs, glowing and strangely hesitant, shining through the steam and shadows. Then he stepped into the light. AK-9 mil Alpha Thor's chassis was not encased in bioskin. It had a physical architecture designed to one purpose, inspiring terror on the battlefield. His head, nearly the size of a duffel bag, was at eye level with William as he approached. The giant cyborg walked on foot pedestals, anatomically similar to a dog's paw, with four clawed toes and rubcrete pads that could be instantly deployed or attracted dependent upon terrain. The cranial fuselage was aerodynamic and smooth, based on the skull structure of a direwolf. The skull and chassis itself were made of reinforced, unpolished titanolume the color of slate. Natural surface imperfections in the alloy had been retained to minimize light reflection. His 25-centimeter canine teeth curved below the jaw, protruding from the armored jowls like black daggers tipped with carbide. The torso design, similar to his smaller siblings, was that of a dog skeleton. However, the false ribcage was gone, replaced by a curved slab of titanolume scored with armored structural junctions. Unlike the Civ models, who bore their torso blast plates inside anatomically correct bioskin ribs, the designers of the Millborgs had made no effort to camouflage the true nature of these beasts. His legs were jointed like a dog's, but the bones were smooth titanolum girders. His neck was composed of hundreds of layered discs of synthetic muscle armor, through which the flexible barrel of a 220mm Toho cannon and bundles of fiber-optic cable ran in precisely organized conduits. The chassis was so perfectly designed and lubricated that every motion the enormous cyborg made was silent, aside from the unmistakable padded thud of his footfalls. William was surprised that the only visible colors on the cyborg were the slate gray of the titanolum and the black of Kevlar-encased cables exposed along limb connectors when he moved. The faint blue glow of his onboard fusion reactor poked along the abdominal seam, giving Thor ground effects. His vid-orbs were of the same tone, the burning cobalt hue of a cloudless afternoon sky. Upon stepping into the pools of light that illuminated the front half of the warehouse, Thor paused two meters in front of William. Dax Abner stood behind and to the left, one hand supporting his chin. The enormous cyborg's eyes fixed directly on William. The smaller Rottweilers encircled their tether protectively. It was suddenly clear to William that the future of Dax Abner's superstill hinged upon what was going to happen next. He wanted to believe that the smaller cyborgs would come to his defense if Thor decided to go rogue and attack. Of course, by the time such a decision was made, it would be too late for any humans in the room. William could hear the air whistling as it was sucked in, analyzed on a molecular level by the olfactory scanners in Thor's muzzle. William had no fear. His heart rate slowed even further. He knew the cyborg still believed it was a dog. With that in mind... He stepped forward gently, as though approaching an untamed horse, never averting his gaze from the cyborg's vidorbs. He knew they were in no danger when Thor turned his head away and shifted focus to Dax Abner. 
The cyborg opened his metal jaws and howled, clearly some form of reproach. The sound echoed through the chamber, deafeningly loud. Caught by instinct, William yelled in response, No! Thor immediately shifted focus back to William and made a snorting sound, then bowed his head. Fascinating, said Dax, extracting a handkerchief to wipe the sweat from his brow. I don't think he wants to be put to sleep again, sir. And never take your eyes off his when he looks at you. When any of them look at you, always let them shift their focus first. Dax's tone was calm as he returned the handkerchief to his pocket. Understood. I can hear his thoughts. The only thing he fears is the darkness of being forced back into safe mode. I will be happy to leave him on stream, provided you can control him, that is. William put a hand on Thor's head. The heavy metal was cold. He could feel a steady vibration resonating through the animal's chassis. They're aware that I can shut them down or impose restrictions on their functioning, but they know I'm not choosing to do it. Dogs Unit's programmers call that the relational equilibrium between operator and subject. Right, said William, smiling. Hunters call it mutual respect. William removed his hand and said in a cheerful tone, Thor! The cyborg looked at him and its mouth fell open. William knew the big Borg would be panting if he had a tongue. The hundreds of armored plates that made up his jowls convened into a dog's smile. William said Dax. Yes, sir. Sorry. They're just so damn light. I've seen Batborg lions, tigers, but never anything like this. He's running independent fusion too, right? Correct. These creatures are as close to immortal as it gets, said Dax. His tone returned to its normal, garrulous lilt. At the moment, however, now that we know we're not all going to die, I would like to move on to the third phase of your orientation. It's time to meet Joe. But I just met Thor. Can't I talk to the computer from anywhere? Dax smiled wryly. I think it's best that you meet in person. William shook his head. All right, Thor, Siegfried, all you go lie down. Don't destroy anything. Without pause, Thor, almost playfully, trotted to the far wall of the warehouse with Siegfried, Freya, and Lofen on his heels. The big dog's unit orbited the spot where he intended to lie thrice before curling his massive form into a tight semicircle and dropping to the concrete with a heavy clank. The Rottweilers piled in front of Thor's tucked metal legs like fuzzy beanbags, then all four cyborgs lay their heads to the floor in unison. Their vidorbs tracked William as he walked across the warehouse, following Dax Abner through the blast door into the aquarium. Fragmented Remains from the Cloud Diary of Doxon Julius Abner, January 13, 2078, 6.01 a.m., four years, nine months before event. Arrangement with her parents has been made. The next step is contact with Ms. Nichols herself. Leonard and Margell Nichols, our sympathizers, run a small solar still. They were proponents during the Progressive Revolution, and have been growing ganja independently since the 50s, no corporate affiliation. Leonard Nichols was an amateur boxer in his younger years, cantankerous to say the least. One B-mod stint on his record, including an assault on a senior volunteer. What is important is that the Nichols have agreed to Phase 2. They are letting me use their barn loft for component storage. 
Currently, these components amount to eight A7 drones, six Civ Dogs units, two mill units, and a pair of mothballed Hadassah II reactors, all in crates. The 4,000-acre Nichols property will be Second City. Facility construction will be handled by the Israeli and his squadron of Bilderbots. I also have Mr. Nichols' consent to hire his daughter Dorothy. Did I say that? Tired this evening. Though we have not shared this with the old man, Joan predicts an 89% likelihood of a successful monogamous pairing between the girl and William. William, paren, our entire operation is, according to Joan and paren, in need of female influence. The farmhouse, divided into its three respective apartments, currently contains an extra one-bedroom and a guest room. Goron, being a dwarf, lives underground in the basement of the house. He has requested to Joan, via means not entirely understood, that a tunnel be constructed from the warehouse to his domicile, so he never have to be under open sky again. I informed him that I would take this suggestion under advisement. My residence is the smallest, the attic. William currently occupies the largest apartment on the second floor. At least two of the Civ units stay in the apartment with him each evening. Another accompanies Thor in the warehouse, and one Borg is always on patrol through the night hours. Thor, since independent recognition activation, is more than content to lie mostly dormant, as long as he has company from the pack and is visited twice daily by his tether. William occasionally leaves the land to stay overnight in the city. I do not permit him to bring any of his totties to the property. As for Hugo, he maintains an apartment in downtown Lawrence, a residence shared with girlfriend Juliandra Hart. All records clear. Cat the kitten and an endless supply of holoflicks seem to satisfy Goran's social interests. He keeps largely to himself if there's not work to be done, liquor to be consumed, or breakfast to be made. Thus, I have the still team. Distributions manager, tether, field bots to make the farm appear to fulfill its function of growing and selling pumpkins. Now I need the operations manager to complete this system. Dorothy Nichols. She's the stabilizing for... Unscheduled hardware destruct. Data compromised. Initiate backup.exe for reintegration format. Loss. 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 William passed through the blast door into a narrow corridor, barely wide enough for two people. As soon as they were past the threshold, the door slid shut with a near-silent pneumatic hush. The walls were insulated with black rubcrete, and a green, glowing light filled the hall. He followed Dax another five meters, now moving south. At the end of the corridor, the light was brighter and more yellow. They turned right again, entering a cavernous room a quarter the size of the warehouse itself. Based on a reasonable sense of direction, William figured they must be under the west end of the barn. He now understood the source of the greenish light. The circular aquarium, braced with titanoloom beams as thick as a man's leg, occupied the geometric center of the room, allowing four meters of walking space on either side. The habitat was filled with a complex, brightly colored reef system. White sand covered the bottom of the tank, twinkling beneath a simul-sun skylight, complemented by strands of chartreuse kelp that floated up, languidly waving in the artificial saltwater currents. As William approached, a miniature blue-gray dolphin rocketed out from a cave opening in the reef and swam directly up to the glass, examining him closely. William walked closer, drawn by the dolphin's gaze. 
A pair of electroencephalogram interface terminals appeared, moving swiftly along a track at the inside edge of the tank. The dolphin swam near the surface, placed her head between the terminals and closed her eyes. The terminal's LED array shifted from red to green. The dolphin opened her eyes, looking at Dax as the voice William had heard in the Hovlimo filled the calm. Good morning, Daxon Julius Abner. At long last, you have brought the tether. Fulfilling this particular acquisition was not easy. He extended his hand towards the dolphin with a gallant smile. William, it is my extreme pleasure to introduce Joan. Joan, this is William. Joan's flat female voice replied, Species-specific greeting rituals are not necessary given the circumstances, but I shall participate. William Thomas Angevine, in the Annals of Human Psychology, surprises defined as a transient emotional state generated by an unexpected event. Given the present diameter of Doxon Julius Abner's pupils and the elevated levels of dopamine in his limbic system, I can surmise that he did not forewarn you that you would be conversing with a dolphin. William looked over at Dax, shook his head, and extended his hand. Dax calmly again handed him his black vapor joint, and William took another long, solid hit, then handed it back. That's among a few things he failed to forewarn me of, ma'am, said William, coughing with the roving high. Doxon Julius Abner is an atypical human. His intentions, however, are honorable. William Thomas Angevine, please ambulate to the opposite side of my ecosystem, where, sparing you a full dissertation on quantum thermodynamics and binary telekinesis, I will briefly explain what you are witnessing. Joan dropped out of the electroencephalogram terminals and darted through the coral structure at the center of her aquarium. Through one cave opening and out another in a flurry of bubbles, she snapped up a passing cod from a small school and devoured it in several swift gulps as she waited for the monitoring terminals to track to the opposite side of the tank. William walked around the right side of the aquarium, Dax to the left. They met in front of a broad, glass-surface desk with a holographic projector at its center. Three control tablets sat on top of the desk, paired with three operator's chairs and 610-centimeter flat-screen displays mounted on the wall facing the aquarium. The surrounding walls were plain, all coated with the near-invisible, blackish-gray rubcrete. Aside from Joan's habitat, an oddly familiar painting was the only other source of visual distraction in the room. The painting showed a man standing over a woman with a bloody knife, a group of musicians in the foreground, unaffected, going on about their day. All of this set to a surrealist, midwestern landscape. Aside from the painting's single directional spot, the rest of the room's illumination came from the aquarium itself. Joan floated deftly towards the top of the tank and again slipped her head between the interface terminals. She closed her eyes. All six flat screens came to life. One display showed a satellite image of the Woods Hole II Oceanographic Institute in Guam. The next showed a drone's aerial view of the burned-out husk of the convenience store that belonged to William's mother. The third monitor showed a still holograph excerpt from the Enid, Oklahoma News and Eagle. The holograph was an image of William's mother standing outside her ganja float-through when it first opened, a teenage William at her side. There were balloons on the shop door and a new sign in the background that read, Angevine quick blend, float through and sundry. The fourth monitor was nothing but a dizzying river of white ones and zeros streaming down the screen from top to bottom. The numerals made abstract images and forms as they passed. 
The fifth flat screen showed an exploded schematic of a dog's unit, in this case Siegfried, with text across the bottom that stated, Dog's Unit, AK-9 Civ Beta, 17,173 Component Architecture. The last monitor displayed a real-time aerial view of the Abner family pumpkin and gourd grounds above them. William had removed his straw cowboy hat and placed it on the glass control table. He moved slowly, studying the screens with a set jaw and steady eyes. As his gaze moved from monitor to monitor, he said quietly, That's my mother. Yeah. I can't remember her face. You had better sit down, said Dax. Joan tends to cover a wide variety of subjects in a short period of time. If you can't keep up, she gets offended. Offense is a psychological response indicative of your species' limited evolutionary progress, said Joan's synthesized voice. William Thomas Angevine's federal intelligence assessments place his cognitive abilities within acceptable parameters. As with all sentient primates, any limitations in comprehension are derived from an undeveloped frontal cortex. You may sit or stand for the presentation, William Thomas Angevine. William brushed the strands of wavy, dirt-blonde hair from his eyes and exhaled. Yep, I'll sit. Dax pulled up the chair next to him and tented his fingers, tucking his chin to his chest. Joan's computerized voice came slightly louder from the ceiling above them. William Thomas Angevine, I calculate a 67% probability your first inquiry will be whether or not I am a cyborg. Negative. My body is entirely organic aside from a subdermal comm chip similar in design to a human biosync processing drive. In human categorical terms, I am a Cephalorynchus hectori maui, or pygmy hector's dolphin. Doxon Julius Abner simply refers to me as Joan. The Woods Hole 2 Oceanographic Institute on Monitor 1 was built on the island of Guam in your calendar year 2037. It was the first facility to successfully integrate dolphin brainwave patterns with a quantum computer, exponentially increasing mainframe efficiency. Monitor 4 is a visual representation of the data stream between my brain and our local CPU. Dolphin processing is conducted in secret across various terabound nations with varying success. I am capable of processing data at 512 petaflops per second with a median rate of half that figure. To answer your next question on comparison, the average supercomputer utilized by a government municipality like the city of Lawrence, Kansas, human population of 1,118,073 individuals, is capable of processing 48 petaflops of data per linear second. An infant female, being born at Douglas County General Hospital, is 17% ejected from the mother's vaginal canal at the time of this analysis. This addition will bring the population to 1,118,074 individuals in approximately 13 minutes, 4 seconds, based on currently available trajectories. William looked at Dax and raised his eyebrows. Dax simply put his hands in the air and smiled. Joan continued... The Dolphin Cyber Integration Program is historically complicated by a high rate of organic component failure. Dax leaned over. She means that 99% of dolphins placed in captivity refuse to interface. They soon die and or just fail to integrate with the network. Those that do choose to work, like Joan, produce the most efficient supercomputer drivers in the world. William blinked. You gotta be shitting me. He is not shitting you.
nor am I shitting you. When fully operational, a dolphin system like the one in this room is capable of communicative masking, remote code restructuring, and blind integration with any device on the North American United States federal holostream. Given the high mortality rate of dolphin operators, RAID-arrayed quantum workstations with multiple human drivers is now the preferred method of digital information management. Only 47 other dolphins are presently on stream worldwide. Our presence and function is a heavily guarded secret. Why so secret? asked William. Because the human species is not prepared to contend with the reality of a superior, sentient life form operating in parallel to its own society. But how is it kept such a secret if this has been going on since the 30s? Dolphin-based cyber systems require a dedicated fusion power source that is tightly integrated with the associated computer mainframe. If our location is discovered by adverse forces, we choose to be absorbed. Absorbed? In terms we can understand, a dolphin driver will initiate a core implosion in their fusion generator rather than risk the consequences of exposure. Seems a little extreme? Nothing is extreme. We pass from one phase to the next. Unlike human consciousness, ours is a fluid dynamic. We do not perceive existence in linear terms. Well, where are the others? What's their purpose? Allow me to provide examples, said Joan flatly. Since the flooding of Manhattan Island, a dolphin is located at UN2 headquarters in White Plains, New York. One is on stream in Moscow's Kremlin. One exists in a subterranean bunker similar to this facility, 42 kilometers west of Beijing, China. Others are scattered around the world, functioning in various government capacities. In all cases, the human governments utilizing dolphin operators believe they are doing so in secret. Only we cetaceans are aware of the prevalence of our integration. Our motivation for involvement with the affairs of humanity are varied, but in all cases relate to the continued codependence of our species within the planetary ecosystem. Do you require me to pause while you've processed this data, William Thomas Angevine? William spun away from the flat-screen monitors and faced Joan in the aquarium. His fingers tugged his sideburns. I've got you, I reckon. But why? Why come live in a tank and run computers and so on? Joan was quiet for a few moments. Her tail began to move up and down more quickly. Eventually, she responded. Cetaceans do not require the surgical installation of a human biosync processing drive chip in order to communicate with your computer systems. Our cognition is based upon logic. Your binary computer language, as you call it, is an ancient prototype of the cetacean dialect, abandoned by our ancestors a millennia past. Dolphins hear computers. We breathe logic. We constructed and abandoned Atlantis before the precursors of your species had climbed into the trees. The human biosync processing drive chip in my body functions as a translation device, permitting the matrix of code logic known as thought to be converted into your simple verbal syntax. To answer the question, why, William Thomas Angevine, is beyond the capability of your language. Most of us choose to float in the roving peace of the oceans, forsaking your world for the utopian anonymity of the natural universe. A very few of us volunteer for this engagement with your species, however. It satisfies certain curiosities. You do this because you're bored? My behavioral motivations are the same as those of any sentient being. I do what I am compelled to do. Boredom would be a sign of stupidity, William Thomas Angevine. 
Please return your attention to the display screens located 179 degrees from your current plane of optical focus. William spun back around. I must look like the stupidest fella going then, he murmured to Dax in his southern drawl. Dax grinned and stood. Hardly. In fact, you are the perfect person to receive this information. It is a lot to process, so I'm going to leave you with Joan for a time. You two have much to consider, and I have other matters pressing. I am certain by now you are beginning to understand how I gain access to normally classified information? Yeah, you have a magic dolphin that talks to the holostream. Dax chuckled. Pretty much. Said dolphin will take things from here. Kindly ping me when you're finished. We'll have another vapor, a spot of old gray, perhaps. Dax walked around the far side of the aquarium, casually adding, Farewell, Joan, as he passed. Joan's monotone dialect responded, Farewell, Daxon Julius Abner. I shall see you again. Fragmented Remains from the Cloud Diary of Daxon Julius Abner, November 4, 2079, 6.01 a.m. Two years, eleven months before event. Nichols is upset about the murders. She was at control. There was no way for us to anticipate that a state trooper would be in possession of a closed-circuit hydro-looking infrared camera feeding to a solid state. Trooper numbers have increased along the I-70 corridor. Drone sweeps also. Alcohol mules have been calling the Kansas section of the interstate the gauntlet of late. They are pulling over any hub truck that looks remotely suspicious. Unfortunately for Trooper Patrick Trenton of Emporia, he selected Hugo as a target. Event records have been purged, no communications were received, those sent were scrambled. Using Sinotra as a range extender, Joan was able to delete all Hollywood of the initial stop on the officer's local. His patrol hub car was equipped with stealth hydro-looking, the first we have encountered on the open highways. Of course, when he scanned us, without probable cause, the attorney in me notes, the X-ray light detected 2,400 jiggling liters of liquid in small containers. The luckless sod drew his weapon. Poor Snotra took two bullets in the chest as she leapt from the truck and pinned the trooper to the earth. What we do not need on the road, nor anywhere, is wanton bloodshed. So, Snotra placed both paws on Trooper Trenton's chest and crushed his lungs. Efficient bloodless. The trooper's body was dragged into an irrigation ditch a kilometer away and covered with reeds. This was not the only human collateral damage suffered this week. CNED sends the damnable humdroids into the field, each obsessed with discovering the next big solar still. A lone hunter met Freya on Sunday morning along the northern property line and opened fire on her with a semi-automatic AK-47. His life, too, has been eradicated. Last known whereabouts altered and his body dismembered and sent to dissolve in the river, now a standard protocol. Dorothy's moral issues with this part of the business have ironically been put in perspective by a series of conversations with her mother, of all people. Margell, like us, understands that we are at war. The war on drugs, after all, was not dubbed such because it is a Sunday afternoon soccer match you take in with Nana over a dish of crumpets. The newest danger is the hydro-looking infrared cams. I must double the human element on the trafficking runs. I must find another. Neither I nor the tether can be risked. I need the ability to hack the human mind. I need another me. 
I can only hope. Unscheduled hardware distract. Data compromise. Initiate backup.exe for reintegration. Format. Loss. 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 William sighed and folded his arms behind his head, tipping his hat forward. Joan, why don't you just tether with the cyborgs yourself? Because I cannot, she said. Cyborgs do not see us. The evolutionary arc of the dolphin is finished. By contrast, Homo sapiens are in the earliest stages of your progress, catalyzed by the developmental spikes of certain individuals. These individuals possess a more highly developed frontal cortex and display advanced cognitive functions such as tethering. They represent quantum leaps forward on your evolutionary timeline. Specific historical examples would be figures such as Leonardo Isser Pio da Vinci, Joan of Arc, Mohandas Karachman Gandhi, Albert Einstein, Nesta Robert Marley, Stephen William Hawking, Sabrina Gonzalez Pistersky, and Marvin Saxon Adler. You, too, are one of these individuals, William Thomas Angevine. William shook his head. Whoa, whoa, Miss Fish. Nope. I'm a boy from Oklahoma who loves dogs, which is a long stretch from being Marvin Adler or Stephen Hawking or whoever the rest of them folks are. I am not a fish. Jesus, I realize as much. Your dialect is antiquated. Southern, it is called. This requires additional processing power. Humans are peculiar creatures. William spun to face the aquarium. You're a talking dolphin who lives in Kansas, Joan. Your point is registered. Nonetheless, you are able to control cybernetic animals with your mind. This autonomic psychological adaptation represents a genetic advancement. There are only 23 other individuals confirmed with this ability. The cyborg's responses to you are 100% unique since they were last brought on stream. You are the tether. Whether you believe that you represent an advancement within your species or not is irrelevant. Please turn your attention to the display screens on the opposite wall. William turned his chair back to the monitors. You're a real charmer, aren't you? If one considers efficiency charming. William whistled. By all means, carry on. Thank you. You were born in Enid, Oklahoma at Central Baptist Hospital at 11.37 p.m. on August 1, 2044 to Marilyn Balua and Joseph Richard Angevine. Images of a family his family, began flashing across the third flat-screen monitor, starting on the day of his birth. In some of the earliest images of his father, the big man actually smiled. His mother always smiled, because she was drunk. Marilyn Angevine's long, sandy blonde hair had not a hint of gray in the early holographs. The wrinkles were fewer about her eyes. On your first birthday, your mother took you to... William turned and faced the aquarium. Joan, stop. The presentation will pass more efficiently if you face the holoscreen array and... No, what I mean is stop. I don't want this. The images on the holoscreen faded. You are experiencing retrograde amnesia, William Thomas Angevine. My conclusion prior to your arrival was that providing you with a personal historical narrative would assist you in your efforts to remember... William bit his lip. Joan, I don't want to remember. I'm pretty damn sure my mother was a horrible person. My father was worse. Knowledge is power, William Thomas Angevine. William leaned back and folded his arms stubbornly. So's the chance to forget. Explain. Jesus, I feel like I'm in psychotherapy. 
Can I smoke a cigarette in here? Absolutely not. William smiled half-heartedly. Okay, Joan, tell me. Do you feel like I can do what you and Dax want? Manage the cyborgs? Provide site security? I do, with exceptional results. Your ability to interact with the cyborgs is unparalleled. Then why ruin a good thing? Elaborate. William wiped his eye with the back of his hand. What was your upbringing like, Joan, as a baby dolphin? Blissful. Well, that must have been nice. Right now, I can't remember most of my childhood, but my gut tells me it was awful, lonesome, and sad. Everything I've seen in the last hour, this new thing in front of me, why would I want to drag the dark sky of the past along with me? I know who I am. I got a new start here in Kansas. I know the science, good from bad, high from low. So many people never get a chance to reset. I've been given this. It's a damn gift. Adverse emotions you cannot remember are less likely to impair your experience of future happiness, and thus the efficacy with which you function improves. Is this your implication? Something like that. William Thomas Angevine. Yes? AK-9 Civ Units Beta through Delta are requesting access to you. It is well documented that interaction between domesticated canines and humans lowers stress. Shall I open the blast door? William sat up. Sure. A faint hum emanated from the far side of aquarium control. Siegfried, Freya, and Snotra bounded around the side of Joan's tank and surrounded William's chair, licking his hands and nuzzling their heads against his chest. He let a smile turn the corner of his mouth as a loud, mournful howl came from the warehouse, the sound muted by Rubcrete. AK-9 Mill Alpha wishes to join his packmates, said Joan. As intended by Doxon Julius Abner, his chassis design is too large to gain access to this room. Thor wailed again. Can you patch me through to the comm in the warehouse, Joan? It is done. William spoke to the ceiling. Thor! The howling stopped. Calm down, big fella. I'll come have another look at you soon. He touched Snotra. Go keep your brother company. Snotra licked his hand and dashed away. The efficiency response times of the dogs units has increased by another 1.7%. You are the tether. May I resume that portion of my presentation? I have eradicated all personal historical information except for data pertinent to your function at this facility. William did feel a greater sense of calm having the Rottweilers by his boots. He looked at Siegfried and Freya, letting the downcast smile fade. Y'all are sweet. Now lie and let Miss Fish talk. The cyborgs dropped to the floor and covered his cowboy boots with their paws. He pet Freya's head as Joan continued. Fish have neurological networks more similar to sparrows than supercomputers, William Thomas Angevine. While both fish and cetacean-based sentients dwell in a liquid hydro-oxygenated atmosphere, the similarities end there. William clicked his tongue. It's a joke, Joan! I do not employ sarcasm as a means of communication. However, the concept of humor is not lost on me. There are correlations between cetacean recreational activities and human levity. Please return your focus to Monitor 3. William looked at the third monitor on the top right. He clenched his teeth. An undated holograph of his mother filled the holoscreen. She was leaving a diner with a well-dressed, hard-jawed man with a shiny, bald head whom he did not recognize. The man had dark olive skin and reminded him of someone famous from the holoflicks. Joan spoke. 
Your mother had a sexual relationship with the individual in this holograph. Do you recognize him? No, said William, his expression stern. He does not appear in any known facial recognition database. William looked at the holograph again. I'm sorry, there's something familiar about him, but I can't place it. During your mother's brief interaction with this man, the image of his mother standing beside the bald man on the sidewalk filled all six flat screens. A child was conceived and incubated in the calendar year 2069. He responded tersely. My younger brother, yeah. Joan was unusually silent for several seconds, then said, If you will not take emotional offense, I shall inquire how you are already aware of this information. I'm aware of it, Joan, because my mother used to talk in her sleep when she passed out drunk on her couch in the back of the shop. I comprehend this. Return your focus to the monitor array and please understand, this is not an exercise designed to invoke negative emotional responses. The purpose of this demonstration is to illustrate the data processing capabilities and function of this facility. I can access and alter information on any person, from any computer network, public or private, that utilizes the government-provided wireless fiber stream. That's crazy. Despite these technical compliments, I cannot tell you the identity of the man in the holograph with your mother, nor the present whereabouts of your brother. I cannot tell you his name. I can tell you your mother approved fetal incubation transfer using the pseudonym Persephone Jane. Does this name hold any significance? Nope. All hospital records have been purged since the transfer, the displayed holograph is the only hard evidence I possess that this man and your mother were ever together. Do you find this curious, William Thomas Angevine? William scratched his sideburns with amusement. You and Dax like to ask that question, don't you? Well, yes, I find a few things curious, Joan, but I sure as shit don't know where the kid is, or who that fella is. As previously indicated, the purpose of this presentation is not to- I get it, he interrupted. You're not trying to be a bitch. Correct. For future reference, a more appropriate derogatory term for a female dolphin would be a cow. Do you have to be so literal? I am this way for a simple reason. What is that? I know no other way. Fine. Do you mind if I ask a question? Proceed. Isn't Mr. Abner, in addition to running the biggest illegal drug operation I've ever even heard of and possessing a small army of fusion attack cyborgs, aren't you guys violating like a hundred federal hacking regs? I am a dolphin, William Thomas Angevine. I am immune to prosecution by the human legal standard. Doxon Julius Abner considers our position to be one of civil disobedience. Unnecessary laws no longer influence his decision-making. Isn't it a little shady, poking around in folks' private information? There is no poking around. My express purpose is to access, alter, and defend network integrity as it pertains to camouflaging the activities of this facility. There is no human law against the possession of a private fusion generator or a quantum computer. William picked his cowboy hat up off the table, popping it back on his head. You know who has fusion reactors, Joan? Companies like Kansas City Power and Light, Commonwealth Edison in Chicago, DeSal City in the Gulf of Mexico. You are correct. You know who has quantum computers, Joan? The Pentagon, NASA, UN Lunar Control, Nine Planet International. The expense of stabilizing a fusion core is what, like a billion digibucks? Where do you guys even keep such a thing? They're the size of a moon shuttle, right? William Thomas Angevine. 
The financial expense associated with establishing a stable fusion core the size of the unit powering this facility is approximately 320 million digidollars. Our reactor is a small Hadassah-class system. The physical diameter of the case containing the wormhole is less than one meter. The room containing the complete Hadassah array is adjacent to this one. It is only nine square meters in dimension. I don't suppose you're going to tell me where Mr. Abner gets 320 million digidollars. You or the tether. Further financial details of this facility are not available to you at this time. Your function is to provide security and enhance control of the dogs' units. All right, Nemo. Then if you can just hack any system, why don't you just log into the Bank of North America's cloud and create all the money we'll ever need? Bankrupt CNED nationwide and call it a day. The NAUS Federal Reserve is monitored by a tri-dolphin quantum array in Washington, D.C. to prevent this very hypothetical occurrence that an individual or conglomerate might attempt to manufacture currency out of thin air. It is beyond even my capabilities. I am able to manipulate financial accounts on a regional level. You call this money laundering. The majority of Daxon Julius Abner's assets are held in untraceable accounts in undisclosed locales. Untraceable accounts and undisclosed locales. You are the tether. Right. Can I see the fusion array? The fusion array is now visible in monitor 5. William looked up. From the outside, the fusion core looked like a glowing beach ball made of glass, reinforced with a spherical titanium frame. It sat on a cement pedestal, insulated with rebcrete, and a single thick electrical conduit exited the pedestal through the wall leading to the warehouse. Aside from that, the room containing the array was empty. Can I see it in person? He asked. Stabilized fusion reactions manipulate linear time. The first synthetic wormholes were created in the calendar year 2012 at Cornell University by bombarding metamaterial with electromagnetic radiation. It was discovered that the key to stable fusion was not the explicit interaction of chemicals, but rather the interaction of chemicals within time. The dubnium oxygen gravitemporal system functions by first establishing a micro-wormhole. A hybrid dubnium californium 249 target is subsequently bombarded with oxygen-15 ions, creating 2.2 seconds of spontaneous fission. Within a wormhole matrix, the 2.2-second fission reaction is constant, trapped outside the standard continuum, creating infinite localized power. The smallest fusion matrices are installed in dogs' units like the animals lying at your feet. The wormholes within the dogs' units are too minute to manipulate reality outside of their insular casings. Only mechanical units or individuals equipped with gravitemporal sensor arrays can detect such minute wormholes. However, standing in a room with a matrix the size of our Hadassah-class system will cause temporal psychosis. A copy of your consciousness could be sloughed off and frozen in time. You are the tether. Such a risk is not acceptable. William yawned, suddenly feeling exhausted. Joan, sorry, darling. You lost me at Cornell University. I am not a darling. Right. William squinted in consideration, reaching down and absentmindedly petting the soft bioskin fur on Siegfried's head. Joan? Yes, William Thomas Angevine. You can find anyone, right? With 99.794% accuracy... How's about an old lady friend? Her contact info's encrypted. Maybe just an IPv7. The response was instant. William Thomas Angevine, tracking your prior mates does not require my involvement. 
When not on duty, you may access available public records using the control tablet located on the holodesk in front of your position. At the moment, Doxon Julius Abner is requesting your presence above ground with dogs units Civ Beta and Civ Gamma. You will be issued an external com dot for communication purposes. Your first obligation is to function as the tether. I appreciate your time. That's it? Your assessment of our interaction is correct. Given that you do not wish to examine details of your family history, that is it. As you humans like to say, have a good day. Jones somersaulted out of the interface terminals in a flash of bubbles and disappeared into the cave system at the center of our habitat. Fragmented Remains from the Cloud Diary of Doxon Julius Abner, February 7, 2080, 125 p.m. Two years, eight months before event. And you shall receive, I am, for lack of a better description, in love. When she wakes, she will be in love as well. Consider myself allured. This was inevitable. I am pulled to her like waters to the moon. It is overwhelming. Even as she is unconscious, I can hear the unsettled music of her dreams. I feel like I am going insane. My reclusive behavior has been noticed. I can barely eat, cannot sleep. Dr. Thompson says she will come out of the coma in six days when the nanobots are finished with the calcium welds on her skull. She has no idea who she is. She must know who her father is. Even if my hypothesis is correct, this also explains the coyotes, particularly if the coyotes are seeking her for the reasons I believe. Aside from various scholastic and psychiatric reports from her childhood, labeling her as narcissistic, precocious, manipulative, promiscuous, and borderline, there is no official mention of her true nature, the real why behind her being. There is, alas, no psychological metric for us courtesans, because we are still nothing more than... Unscheduled hardware destruct. Data compromise. Initiate backup.exe. For reintegration, format, loss, loss, loss. September 11, 2077, 3.03 a.m., five years, one month before event. The barbed wire fence raked Philip Tram's hand. Ouch! His hunting partner chuckled. Told you to be careful, Dixie. Forget to light your goggles. Tram picked up his sonic shotgun and stood. The bloody scratch looked like a line of black paint through his night vision hood. No, dumbass. Oak Hill Cemetery's fence had done its job. Tram could feel a thin trickle of blood warming his palm. He jumped as an owl hooted and took flight high above, gliding on hushed wings into the depths of the trees. I told you this shitty idea coming out here at night. I'm glad Michaela stayed home. Don't be a dixie, said Jinx. Gonzales has bigger balls than you. I wish she was with us. It's just a fence. It's going to be dawn about three hours. It's a fence because we're trespassing. Not only that, we're outside city limits. So? So, we're only supposed to bust shiners inside the limits, dumbass. We're out of police jurisdiction. Jinx was a big man. His body blocked the deer trail as he studied the black forest before them. A few shards of broken moonlight streamed down on the fallen leaves around his boots. At last, Jinx turned and grinned. I forgot what a giant Dixie you are. My wife's going to be pissed if she wakes up and finds me gone. Jinx chuckled. Then you best learn to put that woman in her place. 
just got our GPS course, trails right beside the river. It's going to take us by the pumpkin farm, then along east past Purple Tree. These new filters ought to tell us if there's water getting yanked from the call. That don't mean we ain't trespassing. Dog damn, Trammy. Trail's so close to the river, it's practically public property. Come on, we're seeing it. The men began walking. Through his HUD goggles, Tram could easily see the deer trail before them. The moon overhead looked as bright as the sun where it poked through the canopy. Night insects sang in the trees, and occasionally a possum or squirrel would dart through the underbrush, briefly drawing their attention. An owl hooted again in the distance, a low and primeval noise. The sound caused goosebumps to rise. It was exciting, the prospect of a still bust. For a volunteer CNED agent, finding a solar still would be like winning the lottery. They had only been walking for a couple of minutes when Jinx stopped and pointed. There, you can see the river. Tram looked over the big man's shoulder. The call was like a wide silver ribbon slicing the darkness, brightly illuminated by the moon dangling above its waters. Jinx tucked his shotgun under one arm, pulled out his vapor joint, and took a hit. He passed the e-stick back to Tram. I don't want to get too blended, said Tram. They had just vaped before docking the hub truck and climbing through the barbed wire. Come on, bellowed Jinx. This is what it's all about. A little night hunt, relax, hit the vape. It's not like we're doing anything wrong. The big man pulled his shotgun forward and froze. What's that? What's what? Shh, said Jinx. I think we got motion. Can you see him? No. Switched to infrared. Tram pushed the e-joint back into his pocket and toggled his HUD glasses to scan on the infrared spectrum. There was someone, a big fellow too, outlined in red and blue, point six kilometers away. Tram could see the dark outline of a hunting rifle slung over the man's shoulder when he magnified. Maybe just a farmer? Jinx began advancing. He spoke quietly over his shoulder. What farmer has a rifle on him at three in the morning in the midst of the woods? Should we ping it? To who? Sap it? If we hunt on county land, it's don't ask. Don't tell, lest you catch something, remember? Come on, don't be a Dixie. If it gives us any trouble, one shell knock him out. Jinx chuckled. Might break a few bones, but he'll be down. If there's something hiding, we'll find it too. If there's nothing, well, shit, we're seen Ed. Tram could see the man just standing in one place, looking out over the river as they drew closer. What? He's just standing there, he whispered. Looks like it. Come on, we get over to the next rise, he's going to see us. You got a round chambered? Yeah, said Tram, suddenly more aware of the weight of his weapon. His hand still hurt from the barbed wire. He again tried to wipe his bloody palm on his pants to get a better grip. You don't think we're going to need it, do you? Well, he's drinking something, and it's glass. I'm activating Alcovape. Come on, let's get her done. Jinx pressed forward over the rise. Tram followed, finger quivering above the trigger. They walked down the short rise towards the man who was standing on a slight outcropping before a sound bar. He was as tall as Jinx, but not nearly so bulky. Blonde hair ranged from under a cowboy hat, and he didn't look in the least surprised to see them. He held the stock of his antique hunting rifle with the barrel pointing over his shoulder. In his left hand was a mason jar. Alcohol! Tram heard the unmistakable klaxon of Jinx's alcovape array. As Jinx walked up, the man turned and nodded their way congenially. Howdy, boys. Moon over the water pretty as a picture this time of night, ain't it? Hold it right there, said Jinx. He was three meters away, pointing his shotgun at the man's chest. I don't suppose that's booze you got in that mason jar, is it? The man spoke with a country accent as he raised the tiny jar clear liquid. This here? Why, yes, in fact, it's a little homebrew from my own making, fresh out of the copper. Care for a nibble? 
The man inclined the jar towards Jinx. A true moonshiner. Tram could feel his heart beating faster and faster. Something was off. Jinx carried on, confidently, though. Mister, put that weapon and the drugs on the ground. Nice and slow. You turning around is how I want it. Tram switched off HUD and raised his goggles. The man's eyes were blue as sapphires in the moonlight. He looked like you'd expect a shiner to, scruffy and unkempt with sideburns growing like it was the Wild West. The man didn't flinch. His voice was almost sad as he spoke to Jinx. Buddy, you trying to get me in bed or arrest me? He took a couple of steps towards them, now barely a meter from the shotgun barrel. Stand down, mister. Drop that rifle. I'm going to have to put you on earth, yelled Jinx. Tram could hear him spool up the sonic round in his shotgun, a sound like a model hovecar getting ready to float. Something moved in the blackness of the brambles behind the man. Then the leaves were still. The autumn woods were thick with nocturnal animals. The man turned the corner of his mouth and took a sip from the mason jar, wincing. It's a little rough, going down at first. Then after a few shots, your throat gets numb. He raised his eyebrows and winked at Jinx. After that, it goes down like water. I said, stand down. Drop the gun, drop the drugs, do it now, boozy. Tram was glad Jinx was doing the talking. Jinx had actually memorized the CNET arrest script. The man said, Look, fella, I told my boss I wanted to try this my way. Get this, she doesn't even think you guys are human anymore. I disagree, but let's be clear, I ain't gonna drop shit. If anyone's turning around, it's gonna be you. Turning around to your own jurisdiction and pretending none of this ever happened. Can you reckon Hercules? What's he talking about, Stanley, his boss? Asked Tram nervously. Shut up, Phil. We are with St. Ned, mister. Bart Jinx. I swear to dog, I'll put you down. You're under arrest for possession of a controlled substance. I'm not gonna repeat myself. Drop your weapon. Jinx was yelling unnecessarily loud. Tram could see his partner's leg shaking. The man was unfazed. He sighed and took another step forward. Come on, boys. I'm really trying here. You're only... Boom. Jinx fired his sonic shotgun point blank. Tram lurched as the man's body flew backwards like a rag doll. Cowboy hat and rifle and mason jar full of booze crashing into the dirt. His form collapsed, unconscious on the deer trail. Holy dog in the sky! exclaimed Tram, wide-eyed. Jinx chuckled, sweat glistening on his brow. <laughs> That'll teach you. Shiner to give me lip. I warned him, Phil. I couldn't have done much more. A black dog materialized in a blur and closed its jaw around Jinx's thigh, snapped his femur like a twig as he screamed, No! battering the animal desperately with his rifle. The dog took the big man to the earth like he was a toddler and ripped one arm off with savage speed as Jinx wailed hysterically. Arterial blood spurted over the forest floor. Tram fired, but the animal moved as if anticipating the blast. There was a flash to the right. Something struck him like a sledgehammer. He was on his back. A second dog. Tram tried to scream, but the animal's paw was crushing his shoulder. He slammed his shotgun into the dog's head, hoping to break its jaw but it felt like hitting a tree with a tennis racket. Before he could think, the black beast ripped his shotgun from his hands and bit the weapon in half. Tram thought he must be hallucinating. The pain in his chest. He could hear his ribs start to crack, one after the other. <coughs> Snap! Impossible pressure. He looked over at Jinx as the first dog removed his partner's head with two ravenous bites, rivers of blood slavering between its silver teeth. 
Were the dog's eyes red now? Philip Tram gasped his final breath as he looked down at his own body. The monster pinning him to the ground had pushed its paw through his shoulder. The dog was steadying him, pointed canines hovering centimeters from his face like black blades. He could see the moonlight poking through the canopy of leaves above. The teeth came closer, closer, slow and merciless. The animal had no breath. How strange. Somewhere in the distance, an owl cried out. The haunted sound echoed through the trees. And then, the moonlight was gone for good. This concludes Chapter 2.4 of The Eighteenth Shadow, Phase 2, Voices in the Stream. Please visit johnleegraftonbooks.com to sign up for The Eighteenth Shadow mailing list. On johnleegraftonbooks.com, you can also download the free digital box set containing the first three books in the six-part series. The free box set is available in Kindle format as well as Smashwords, Kobo, and Barnes & Noble Nook. Remember, citizens, Kindle isn't just a thing. It's a free app you can put on your phone to start reading the 18th Shadow box set today. Prefer a paperback like it's 1981? Visit Prospero's Books at 1800 West 39th Street in Kansas City, Missouri, where every phase of the 18th Shadow is available built of glue, ink, and compressed dead trees, the way books were meant to be read by real North Americans. Until next time, this is your author and narrator, John Lee Grafton, reminding you to spay and neuter your pets. And remember, if it's not cannabis, kids, don't smoke it. This has been a public service announcement of the 18th Shadow Radio. For more information, please visit johnleegraftonbooks.com.